0: I'm sure you've heard many assertions from leaders or read news that makes you go, hmm? Or even, hey? You know, there's a word for this era. Let's talk about post truth.
1: This is a News Laundry podcast, and you're
0: listening to Let's Talk About. Every year, Oxford Dictionaries selects a word or expression that has attracted the maximum amount of interest during that year. This year, it was hardly surprising that Oxford Dictionaries chose post truth. One of the most compelling forces in creating the post-truth world was Donald Trump's campaign and then becoming president almost based on post-truths. Here's John Oliver's take on post-truth.
2: Now, since taking office around 412 years ago... Trump has made it clear that reality is not important to him. Think about it. Uh, He's exaggerated the size of his inauguration crowd. Uh, He said the election was marred by mass voter fraud with no real proof of that. Uh, He also falsely claimed that, uh, that compared to Muslims, it was almost impossible for Christian refugees from Syria to get into the US. He even lied about the weather during his inauguration. It was almost raining. The rain should have scared him away, but God looked down and he said, we're not gonna let it rain on your speech. No, he didn't. First, it did rain while you were speaking. That's why your wife was holding up an umbrella and people behind you were wearing ponchos. And second, if God did look down, his only thought would have been, wait, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir? Come on, I'm sick of them and I'm God. Could you not book silence, or was silence somehow boycotting this thing too? So, so that is where we are currently at. We have a president capable of standing in the rain and saying it was a sunny day. And before we go any further, Donald Trump
0: lies is clearly not a fresh observation. Post-truth has been so all-encompassing that almost every commentator on the scene has dealt with it. Here's Bill Maher's cutting take on it. The problem is that somewhere along the line, the information superhighway
2: became bullshit boulevard and truth was roadkill. Now of course the world has always had a lot of gullible people who will buy anything. Have you been to Salt Lake City? (laughs) But at least Americans used to get their news from actual news organizations. Now they get it from chain emails and chat rooms and Facebook posts written by lunatics and sadists.
0: According to Oxford, it was first used in a January 1992 article in the magazine The Nation by the Serbian-American playwright Steve Tessish. He wrote, and I quote, We are rapidly becoming prototypes of a people that totalitarian monsters could only drool about in their dreams. All the dictators up to now have had to work hard at suppressing the truth. We by our actions are saying that this is no longer necessary that we have acquired a spiritual mechanism that can denude the truth of any significance. In a very fundamental way, we as a free people have freely decided that we want to live in some post-truth world.
3: Post-Truth
4: British politics was dominated this year by the Brexit referendum. In America, it was the presidential election. Both campaigns caused spikes in the usage of the phrase post-truth. That is, when objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. The phrase could now take on an even wider importance. It describes not just particular assertions, but a general characteristic of our age. And its usage in 2016 has sat overwhelmingly alongside just one other noun cementing the idea of post-truth politics. The truth, lamented one British newspaper commentator recently, has become so devalued that what was once the gold standard of political debate is a worthless currency.
0: According to the dictionary, post-truth politics also called post-factual politics, is a political culture in which debate is framed largely by appeals to emotion, disconnected from the details of policy, and by the repeated assertion of talking points to which factual rebuttals are ignored.
5: Hey, did you guys hear about all this fake news? Did you hear about all this false stuff being put online? Isn't it crazy that people tell lies on the internet? Were you aware of that? That people tell lies for media coverage? Did you know? that websites will push whatever narrative they want because they're designed to reinforce political positions as opposed to inform people, and they only really seem unbiased to people who already believe everything they say. It's pretty crazy, right?
0: We are living in a world now that we have been identified as deliberately not only fooling ourselves, but also seeking to be fooled. Of course, this is not a new disease. It's just that now the disease has a name. It is obvious that we cannot address or deal with social phenomena without identifying it. We must accept that if racism, sexism, casteism and such were not identified, classified and described, there would be no struggle to eliminate any of these social behaviours. For centuries, all these forms of social behaviour were acted out and considered acceptable. Was British racism recorded in colonial India? How did they get away with it? Because it wasn't highlighted enough. We were embarrassed about it. We were complicit in covering it up, often by praising the British. How did men get away with treating women on the level of servants and slaves? Because that acceptable behavior was never red flagged with objection. It had no name, it had no identification. So it was easy. That is why it is important to identify the phenomena of post-truth. Yes, it has existed for centuries, but in naming the disease, we begin to deal with it. I have interviewed a series of writers, thinkers, philosophers, historians, even archaeologists on their views of post-truth. Journalist Max Rodenbeck, who is the bureau chief for The Economist in South Asia, has a larger, more international view of post-truth, having covered the Middle East and Asia for many years.
5: Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, people have put a name to something, post-truth, which has been around for, for, for quite a long time. But I think it's important to, 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 to sort of name things, because actually the modern meaning is slightly different. Uh, um, uh, because there is there is a new technology that's come in, um, uh, which is social social media uh, metadata, the collection of immense amounts of data, and so on and so forth. Um, the way that news spreads, and information sm- spreads, has changed quite a bit. We were we lived in an age, you know, from I suppose, you know. Uh, 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 you know, the 1920s uh, until now, for about a century, in an age of broadcasting, where you have you know uh, uh, fairly centralised sources of information, such as you know the BBC, for example, or you know Doordarshan, uh, uh, something like that, you know, which 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 emit news that spreads to everyone, and so everyone was sort of informed by the same news. It's no longer the case. It's it's now sort of narrow casting and um, many people now are informed by. They have much more choice, and so they're informed by precisely what they choose to be informed by. They are actually agents that want you not to know the truth, that want you or want you to be confused. And this is something that I've seen very often in the Middle East. Um, a lot of the, the sort of intelligence services, secret services, secret police, Muhabarat, as they call them in, in, in Arabic, which every single country in the Middle East has Muhabarat, and uh, some of the more uh, experienced. Of these uh, sort of you know government institutions, um, see it as their job to guide you know what people think, and this can include uh, 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 you know guiding them towards things that are obviously not true, uh, giving versions of history for example that are not true. Um, you know the, the countries that, that we'll talk about our great victory in some war when actually everyone knows that it wasn 't a, a victory, this sort of thing you know? uh, that, that 's something one sees and then there 's another element which is um, a slightly more sophisticated version of that for for these Mukhabarat you know, and so on, uh, which is to d- deliberately confuse people so that they have no idea what is the truth, which way is up and that 's something that 's interesting th- that links to what 's happening now in the world with post truth. Um, because this is this technique is a very Russian thing. I mean, it's, it's sort of Russian secret services that goes back quite a long way, is to put out so many different versions of things and to cast so many aspersions on, on everything that really people don't know what the truth is and what, what isn't. And this is something that one sees with uh, um, uh, lately with the sort of trolling. Uh, that's been done by the Russians lately in America with Trump. Uh, In Europe, for example, over issues such as immigration, there's there's been a great Russian effort to um, uh, sort of turn things upside down so you don't know which way is up. Or over, for example, the war in Syria is is a very good example of that. Um, uh, A lot of the narratives about what's happening in Syria uh, uh, were deliberately so confused um, that 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 many people are left not knowing who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, which you know who's uh, who's right, who's wrong, um, uh, and that's a deliberate tactic. Because in the end, you know, the, uh, uh, particularly you know inside Russia, for example, your your Russian citizen has to end up relying on the the greatness of the leader to guide them out of this this morass. You know, the truth truth must rely with power. You know, uh, um, uh, and of course that's some. Um, Antithetical to uh, the task of journalists, which is the profession that I work in, where you're you're, you're supposed to speak truth to power. Um, and um, what this, the danger of this post-truth thing is, uh, in a sense, that it makes it turns power into truth.
0: Mahir Sharma defines and analyzes this phenomenon.
6: I think that when we talk about post-truth today, what we are worrying about is a situation in which you can create a narrative around an event and you can disconnect that narrative from what appear to be the facts on the ground. And people would rather believe the narrative than what appear to be authoritative Uh, um, uh, descriptions of what the facts on the ground are. And the reason that they would prefer to believe the narrative that has been created is that it, it connects to them emotionally in a way that the facts on the ground may in fact not. Or that they do not believe that the facts on the ground are being conveyed to them by trustworthy people. So for one of those two reasons, it is the case that the narrative itself matters more than anything else.
0: Do you think at some point it will crack and people will say this is
6: not true? I think that what is entirely possible is that people will believe it is true in general, but that for some reason it is not happening to them. And they will then blame, be encouraged to blame individuals or forces or groups or communities saying that in general this policy is working, but you are being held back for this reason in your area the state government is an, in a problem in your area the minority or majority community is a problem in your area the supreme court is a problem for you these are the issues and y- y- you know the politician has done his job he has come up with a decision it has by and large worked but you know the bankers are corrupt you know there are and and and, and, and other forces will be created as scapegoat will be uh, uh, identified as scapegoats in order to preserve the narrative and People who already believe the narrative can continue to believe the narrative saying, yes, this is the reason why the narrative is still true, although I can see that the facts on the ground do not apply directly to me. There are lots of
0: truths and everyone is claiming that their truth is more true than the others. Is there such a thing as absolute truth? Is it possible to evaluate every fact yourself to determine for yourself what is truth? Sometimes that is not possible, and we have to rely on someone else's version and then evaluate their truth. Instantly, you have already projected your perspective on how you will evaluate truth. Luke Harding, British journalist and foreign correspondent for The Guardian, has dealt with Russian post-truths when he was stationed there. In fact, he wasn't allowed back into Russia because Putin did not like Luke's reports and his facts on what was happening in Russia. So we have with us Luke Harding, a British journalist and a foreign correspondent for The Guardian. He's now based in London and was best known for uh, when he was in Russia for The Guardian from 2007 till 2011 when he was refused entry because of the kind of stories he had written about in in, about Putin and in Russia. We see a successful Donald Trump uh, becoming president on similar kind of lies which what one could call a collective shadow, believed. Mm-hmm. How does journalism combat what people want to believe? I mean, isn't that what post-truth is about? That we have to fight something which people would rather believe what they want to rather than look at facts.
4: Yeah, and, and this is what the kind of clever, sort, of, um, n- sort of new authoritarian leaders have, have figured out, that actually it doesn't matter what's true. Um, that, that What matters is what people can be persuaded to believe is true. Um, and, and I think Putin is kind of the world master at this kind of thing, that, that essentially uh, he has a sort of nihilistic uh, philosophy of information where, where anything can be sold, any story, however, however dark or fantastical, can, can be disseminated, and that, that a section of the, people will, of the population will believe it. Uh, and more than that, in a way, you don't have to persuade everybody. You just have to kind of flood the zone with confusing information um, so people don't really know what's true and what's not.
0: Speaking truth to power, says Luke Harding Is truth actually attainable or will there always be competing versions to every fact? Manu Joseph, author, journalist and editor has detailed and complex views about the responsibility of journalists towards post-truth Talked about post-truth and when people talk about
7: post-truth inevitably they are talking about the right wing Uh, but why don't we look at it differently now, why don't we ask this question now why did the respectable american media and the mainstream american literature why didn't they anticipate donald trump isn't the failure of an i know that they report they've been reporting facts but there's a difference between facts and truth so why didn't the the intellectuals american intellectuals the liberals why couldn't they anticipate donald trump while he did come true isn't the failure of that analysis also post-truth Okay, isn't the collapse of analysis where, where you are this great, uh, uh, great literary nation? They have such a rich tradition of writing and journalism. They have fabulous institutions, uh, and they have a great reach. And um, if their analysis was not good enough, uh, I feel that that too should be included in the uh, uh, in in in, in, uh, in what is known as post-truth. And I think that has be been largely ignored. Exactly. You know, that's largely Post-truth is, you know, just, the, uh, just fake stories. Yes, fake stories is a big problem. But the fact that... See, and also I want to make one point. Okay, and also this whole business of fake news is also a bit of an exaggeration where it's being s- simplified too much. Now, you take the Facebook stories, okay? So take stories like the Pope uh, has endorsed Donald Trump, which was a fake story. And people point to that uh, in... The sh- millions of uh, likes and millions of shares on the stories to say that, see, this is how it's propagated. But look, we have been in this position before and we know something significant. I don't know why we are not saying it. You're saying that the number of people who shared a fake story about Donald Trump shows that such fake stories are systematically promoted. But what if the reverse is the truth? What if the truth is that Donald Trump was already popular, that people love him and because they love him and they don't get to hear anything good about him, they latch on to any story, even though they might know that it's a, suspect, it's a but they are sharing it and liking it as a sign of the, his popularity, not that he has become popular because of the propagation of the stories, but the stories have been propagated. As a form of admiration for him. What if that is the truth? I'm saying that. I'm yes, not saying that back, is the truth. Kind of backwards. No? Exactly. Maybe what if the reverse is the truth? And maybe it, maybe the whole idea of fake news. See, there is some substance to it, but maybe its its power is a bit of an exaggeration. Again, we are committing the same mistake. The mainstream media, the liberal. We are doing the same as instead of instead of seeing how we can, uh, instead of dismissing people as dumb. Which they may or may not be, I think we should look at how can we be as popular as fake stories? How can true stories be as uh, popular as fake stories? If the answer is the human condition is such that it would always lean towards the substandard, then there is no discussion even needed. You know that this is humanity, and every time, uh, and, and if humanity is empowered. Uh, to communicate the way it wants to it would always reach out to substandard things and there is no hope for quality journalism give up what's the point in even discussing but if you have a better opinion about humanity that if you feel that the human condition is able to see uh, quality journalism then I think we can talk and then I think the talk should uh, primarily concern um, the importance of that, cre- of that defamed word interesting interesting be interesting just sometimes in life what is important need not be interesting and it is our job as writers to make what is
0: important interesting i have with me john elliott who has been in india for over 25 years he's a former financial times uh, journalist and um, has written for the economist new statesman and fortune magazine uh, now he writes a blog on South Asian current affairs called Riding the Elephant that also appears on the websites of Newsweek, The Independent and Asia Centennial.
8: Yes, I mean, as you say, it's always happened, though I suppose it's become more prevalent and more worrying now with with social media and the ability of people to tweet the, the post-truths. Um, certainly Indira Gandhi did it when, when she was Prime Minister and I guess Rajiv Gandhi when he came back as well. Um, And then you have military dictators like Zia in in Pakistan, who I saw right at the beginning, uh, who who try to blanket out the reality by just making broad statements. I can't remember them after all this time, but making broad statements. Um, And and, and it's been most noticeable recently with demonetization, um, because um, Aaron Jetley, the finance minister, was saying by around November the 19th, that it was going to be that the, 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 the demonetized economy with the digital economy was going to be the, the new normal. And that new normal started to be said around November 19th, which was two weeks after it was announced. And they carried on saying it. They're still saying it. He, Aaron Jetley is still making a speech saying the new normal. And everybody knows it's not the new normal. I mean, in fact, when he first said it, I almost made it a headline on my blog, and then I thought I can't put it in a headline. It's such a stupid thing to have said. So I put <laughs> it. I put it further down the. I put it further down the, further down the column, um, and and um, the, the prime minister said around the same time that any evidence of economic slowdown was mere anecdotal, merely mere anecdote, um, which he hoped would spread out, and that sort of message does spread. People do begin to accept it. You begin to, you do begin to wonder whether he's right. And it's just all of us gossiping in Delhi or gossiping in the village or gossiping wherever. Um, and in fact, these guys are telling the truth. But we know they're not. Um, the most recent one is Amitabh Kant, who's um, a close Modi advisor and uh, was, Depart- was Secretary for Industry, who ran the Make in India campaign. Well, nobody's making in India any more than they were before. And he quotes FDI statistics to try and prove that people are coming in to make an India. And there's no connection because the people who are coming in with FDI, with foreign direct investment, are not making, and in manufacturing sense, they're doing other things. Yet he keeps on saying it. And his latest one is that by 2020, there won't, we won't be using any plastic credit cards, we won't be using checkbooks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He said it here, and I had him on a session yesterday and challenged him here in here in Jaipur. He said it in Davos, that was on TV the other night, um, and he's made it said it several times, and you can't. So when you challenged body.
0: him, what did he say?
8: Oh, he went off into a whole ream of stuff about how brilliant everything was and ignored the fact that the, that the internet didn't connect. I mean, he ignored the fact when I told him that in my hotel here in Jaipur, I couldn't order an Ola cab because I couldn't get a connection to the... To, I hadn't got a 3G telecom connection. And, and then he said in, in Davos that it's going to be the biggest change in the world, in, in the whole history of the world. And he knows it's not true, yet he keeps on saying it because he wants to get the message across that Digital India is going to work.
0: But um, John, won't it be even worse when the reality that people live in in India jars uh, into their lives? They know they know that what they're living is not is not matching what they're told is true. They people who are losing their jobs it doesn't at some point post truth defeat itself because when people are living the opposite, uh, it just. Then translates into voting against these lying politicians.
8: Well, I suppose I suppose it does up to a point, but then you just vote them out and have another lot doing the same thing and vote them out the next time as well. Um, and in this case, there's a in this case there's a hope that um, uh, the government obviously hopes that the basic belief that hey we have a guy, the prime minister being there, hey we have a guy who is trying to tackle this problem will win through. Oh, well, he tried, you know. We ought to vote him in again so we can have another try. on the the black money uh, aspect I'm I'm on then. But uh, going back to Alan Jetley, who's the finance minister, who I mentioned just now, I sometimes think that lawyers um, are are some of the worst people at post-truth because they don't need to tell the truth. A lawyer, when he goes into court to argue a case, isn't being expected by neither the judge nor the jury nor anybody else expect him to be telling the truth. They expect him to be representing his client. The truth to a lawyer, in my view, is totally immaterial um, because they're hired to to, to defend or prosecute, they're not um, uh, hired like a journalist, or um, yeah, like a journalist who's, is who's to, supposed to tell the truth. Who suppose who's supposed to analyze and, and, and tell the truth, and and one hopes academics do do too, but they're not. So maybe it's not surprising that Aaron Gently behaves as though he was in a in a court of law and says, oh, it's, it's uh, take the prime minister's phrase, it's anecdotal. There's, there's minimal problems with the economy. It's a temporary phenomenon my lord, I mean, let's look at the railways. Uh, yesterday, I mean, I haven't seen the news because I've been busy here at the festival, but I believe yesterday there was another serious railway crash yes. um, with, with many people dead, which is a tragedy. Um, and when I wrote about Post-Truth on my blog, which was after demonetization, there'd been another railway crash the day before. And every time there's a railway crash in this country, um, the, the politician, and the railway minister, um, and maybe the chief minister, announces laps of money for the, for the for the for the for the families who've been bereaved or seriously injured, and they announce an inquiry, and they tell and that the message to the people is everything's okay. We've looked after the people who've suffered. We've ordered an inquiry, but you never hear any more about it afterwards. It's another form of post-truth, where you think about that by announcing certain things, you can block out the reality, and, and people won't worry. But the railway situation is, a, is becoming um, a crisis, that there are so many crashes, and nobody really gets into the issue of what the, what the railway minister is doing about it. I mean, the internet services, and um, having internet freely available on a railway station is marvellous. It would be much better if the trains didn't crash when they left the railway station.
0: Is the writing of history the beginning of post-truth? Is that where versions of stories evolve and differ? When history is written and rewritten, is it nothing more than playing around with post-truth? Ian Wilson elaborates on this. We have with us uh, Mr. A.N. Wilson, a prolific columnist and author of fiction and non-fiction. Um, in context of your books on Queen Victoria and Hitler, Uh, How would you context post-truth? Because what you've done, actually, in both those books, is looked at what were so-called, in quotes, established facts, re-looked at them, and then interpreted them in the way what you would say is your post-truth analysis. You mentioned Hitler, and I
9: think he, in a way, is one of the key figures in the whole post-truth debate. Up to the 19th century, I think political distraughts at least attempted to be rational. You see, I mean, the 19th century was based on the idea that money was solid. Uh, in the years before Hitler came to power, suddenly people looked in their bank balance. They thought they'd been very rich, which they had been last week, and the money was worth nothing. And he led them into a kind of topsy-turvy world in which what he said was what beguiled them, quite regardless of whether it was true or not. He said that it would be possible through completely peaceful means to establish full employment in Germany. He did establish very nearly full employment, but it wasn't through peaceful means. Uh, It was by creating factories, which he called car factories, but were in fact armaments factories. He said that the reason for uh, Germany having lost the First World War was uh, a conspiracy of the Jews, which of course there's no evidence for whatsoever. In other words, Hitler was almost like a novelist or a um, surrealist painter imposing upon the world a completely fictitious version of events. Partly this happened, I think, because of the success of the left also. It's not only these extreme right-wing groups who do this. In Soviet Russia, which was contemporaneous, of course, with Hitler, you witness, because the revolution succeeded on one level throughout the old regime, but failed on another. It didn't deliver prosperity and happiness for everybody. It had to feed itself with more and more lies. I had an old friend um, called Malcolm Mudridge, who was a famous journalist, who used to come to um, India a lot, and indeed uh, worked here and was a newspaper editor in, in India. And he attended some of the show trials in Soviet Russia. And he said to a journalist there who was listening to these denunciations of Stalin's former friends, now enemies, um, how did they get all the evidence uh, in order to send these people to their deaths? And the journalist replied with a sad smile, uh, in these trials, everything is true except for the facts. And So that is post-truth. And that is, to me, the definition of post-truth, that everything is true except the facts. Uh, once you enter the world of fantasy which the Soviets certainly did. You know, they, they, they had regular broadcasts telling people who were starving that they had never had so much food in their lives. They, they told them that uh, their life was one of freedom and joy when they knew that their relations had been carted off and locked up in camps. And likewise, uh, the Germans knew, they must have known, the intelligent Germans, that the things Hitler was saying were a pack of lies. But what's frightening about the German and Hitler example is that little by little by little, The lies were so comprehensive. Uh, Dr. Goebbels, the propaganda minister for Hitler, used to say that if you tell a big enough lie, everybody will believe it. And um, by the end, there were an awful lot of supposedly rational Germans who did believe that there was a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. We've entered a world in this so-called post-truth universe. We've entered a world where reason and the distinction between truth and falsehood doesn't really matter anymore. And it's quite possible, for example, I don't just want to harp on about Donald Trump, but it's possible for him to get up uh, and say that he's going to build a wall uh, to keep out the Mexicans, or that he's going to enact a law which says that no Muslim may enter the United States. (laughs) I mean, there are millions upon millions of Muslims in the United States, as he knew perfectly well. Um, Many of them bring enormous wealth and prosperity to businessmen uh, and, and women in New York and so forth. Um, some of whom I know, Uh, he knew it was false with a bit of himself, but I think presumably when he stands on the rostrum uh, and makes these pronouncements, it is comparable to what was happening in the 1930s, where what is being fed through the microphones to the masses, um, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Indeed, the criterion of truth has ceased to exist. Everything is true except for the facts. And we're in that world now.
0: Simon Winchester spoke about the insidiousness of post-truth. I have with me Simon Winchester, uh, a British journalist and author who now lives in Massachusetts, in America. He's a prolific author of about 25 books, has worked for The Guardian, and has briefly, was briefly assigned to Calcutta.
10: And uh, Delhi.
0: And Delhi. His book, uh, The Professor and the Madman, published in 1998, tells the story of the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. Right. Fascinating idea and fascinating research you must have done to get out all that material.
10: It was fascinating and it's particularly extraordinary now because it's being made into a movie, so uh, with Mel Gibson and Sean Pence. So, but Post-Truth, um, which is post-truth, hyphen was incorporated into the OED a couple of years ago and became declared to be the word of the year, I think, for 2016. And it's really the new belief that uh, systems often operate on no longer on absolute truth, on objective truth, that it is we live in a world where truth is in itself a fugitive thing and uh, we make decisions and um, take uh, actions dependent not necessarily and this is particularly an aspect of the media um, that is based not on absolute truth or objective truth but on a sort of fluid uh, truth which is not often, which is often not true at all. And we're seeing a lot of this, this post-truth in the whole eruption of uh, fake news, for instance, as it's known, which I imagine might be the 2017 word or phrase of the year, um, in the aftermath of the American election. And indeed, um, as recently as um, the immediate aftermath of Mr. Trump's inauguration There was much uh, discussion about how many people attended and the television news presented us with a figure of 250,000 people attended the inauguration. Trump's press secretary went uh, on television to declare this to be totally untrue and that at least a million people turned up. So the television, in his view, was presenting a post-truth. The absolute accuracy, whether it was 250,000 and a million is in a sense non-relevant because the perception now out in the country is that um, we don't know the absolute truth. And uh, the Trump team go with the post-truth of a quarter of a million. The others, his opponents, go with the post-truth of one million. So life is getting very complicated and post-truth is uh, an insidious phenomenon which uh, I hope enjoys or suffers a very brief life. But um, the internet does not require fact-checking and that's one of the problems. And so Post truth rules on the internet these days.
0: I have with me uh, Sunil Kilnani, a very well known, prolific writer, and at present professor of politics and director at King's College in London. Uh, his best known book, I think, is The Idea of India, and his last book, which has just had tremendous critical acclaim, is um, Incarnations. It was a bestseller and highly appreciated.
3: Well let me come at it first of all um, I guess as a historian um, and as you mentioned the book I've just done is a history of 50 lives from Indian history and one of the things I wanted to do in that is to say that um, with many of these lives we know them only through kind of mythic stories about them whereas in fact these were real historical figures and they, they had complicated difficult and often, you know, not always ennobling lives. And so I wanted in that to go back to the historical record, to the truth, if you like, as, as much as we can know it as a scholar, and to tell that story. And I think it's particularly important for historians to do that, um, because in a way, I mean, what we're seeing in India today is almost a kind of overinvestment in historical myths about the past and underinvestment in historical truth about the past. And lack
0: and of an uh, investigation.
3: Exactly. So I was trying to demythologize some of these stories and say, look, they're still remarkable people. In fact, they're even more remarkable if we see them as human beings. But I think this, this, this um, moving away from the record, from the historical fact to a more imaginative uh, version of the past or present day politics is something that's happening at every level. It's happening in, in journalism, driven by different pressures. Some are political pressures, some are commercial pressures. Um, but we do need to fight it as journalists, as scholars, as, as writers. But for me, one of the biggest dangers we face is actually the corruption of the truth—a a kind of sense that we can play fast and loose with the facts um, because it's for some higher purpose, because we're building the nation, or because we're pursuing some greater good. We can be—we uh, can discount the truth, and I think that's a very dangerous and corrupting. Uh, path to trod. If you look at the period of the nationalist movement and right into the 50s or 60s, I mean, there was this real commitment, uh, whether it, uh, obviously starting with Mahatma Gandhi, with Gandhiji, that, that you know, the truth was actually the most powerful weapon you have, particularly if you are powerless, if you don't have economic power, if you don't have political power, if you don't have military power. The one thing that can defeat those who have power is the truth. And I think, you know, we have no more powerful example of that in 20th century history than our own uh, national movement led by Gandhi. And, and, And so I think when we play fast and loose with the truth, it's not just that we're denying the historical record, we're actually denying a weapon of great power to the powerless. They, that's all they really have. So, you know, whether it's the record of how government money is spent in reality, whether it's the record of, you know, whether children are getting to school, it's the truth, the facts, the data about that that can actually, you know, be used to hold. Government and politicians to account. But even if you look, for example, if you look at Parliament today, um, you know lots of things are said in Parliament which need to be fact-checked, which need to be fact-checked. And I think, I think you know, part of what the, the the public discussion needs to do is to be constantly fact-checking when the Prime Minister makes a whole series of claims about you know so many million accounts have been opened, or so. These things need
0: to be tested. I asked Shabani Basu also for her historical perspective of post-truth we have with us Shabani Basu uh, she's a very well-known journalist highly respected a historian and um, has writes for The Telegraph from London if I'm correct and has written is the author of uh, Victoria's uh, Victorian Abdul Uh, for King and another country.
1: Um, In the context of journalism, that is also something that we're going to keep on. You know, events, big events happen, and then you do those anniversary editions of, you know, it is, say, 30 years of the Bhopal crisis, and it's time to re-examine it, see what happened. Remember, re-examine the the 1984 riots. Um, Looking at it journalistically,
0: what we are also looking at say you brought up the Bhopal tragedy, you brought up 1984 Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of lies and Mm cover-up was done on both these Mm -hmm. and people want to believe what Mm -hmm. they want to believe Mm -hmm. and make it a fact Mm -hmm. so when you re-examine the post-truths of these two incidents um, what do you hope to achieve in terms of do you think it's possible to make people change their minds according because they've come to those conclusions Mm -hmm. believing that they look for the facts that support their beliefs rather than the other way around, rather than looking at facts and then forming a belief.
1: And that is why the distance is so important. As, uh, you know, famous journalist Philip Knightley said, the first casualty of war is truth, and that will happen. When the conflict is actually on, when the situation is on, you're going to get so many versions, and one of the those versions is going to be accepted, and another, you know, there will be a casualty of truth somewhere. So years from now, you can look back at it and uncover those stories. Some forgotten voices which may not have been heard, re-look at the papers, look at the papers that may have been suppressed and bring them out with, with the added advantage of the you know, the years between, to give a more impartial view of, of events.
0: Archaeologist Barry Cunliffe believes that archaeologists were possibly the first to play around with post-truth. Barry talks about the dangers of giving space and airtime in the interest of so-called balance to the most bizarre notions presented as facts. We're speaking to Barry Cunliffe, who's an archaeologist and has his unique, rather unique take on uh, post-truth as related to archaeology. So, uh, Barry, tell me, does the post-truth syndrome apply to archaeology at all?
11: Uh, it's certainly applied long before the word was even thought of, because um, archaeology is based on very tenuous evidence, um, the, the reconstruction of the past based on little bits of data, um, and just about everyone Um, thinks they can create from the bits of data they know some vision of the past. And what we find is that um, we call them free thinkers in archaeology. There are people who um, build up some vision of the past that is blatantly wrong, but it's something that they desperately believe in. And uh, it's very difficult to persuade them that the specialist evidence which we as professionals dig up um, can uh, actually contradicts them. And uh, it's a syndrome we've come across a very great deal. People who believe in Atlantis, for example, this, this continent that is supposed to have um, gone beneath the sea, um, they, they refuse to look at the real archaeological evidence. And what, what, what we do find now is um, that there is a tendency um, for um, organisations like the BBC to feel that they've got to be even-handed in giving airtime um, to uh, some quite wild theories. Uh, ...about the past, which, which professional archaeologists would all agree are absolute nonsense. So, Is that, is um, that
0: an attempt for balance?
11: It, it is an attempt for balance, and it's something that the BBC is extremely good at. Um, but I think it's taking that desire to be fair to all views much, much too far. There are some views that are actually based on real, tangible facts that are agreed by professionals... And there are some views which are um, are blatant nonsense, which are based on nothing. And to give equal airtime to them as though they are of equal value is, I think, one of the dangers that we're getting into.
0: What is at stake? Why would people want to believe there was an Atlantis?
11: Um, I I think people want to believe... um, uh, Quite a lot of people have some sort of fantasy about how the world was. And when you tell them how it was... Um, It is contrary to their cherished beliefs and so um, everyone wants to argue to protect their own beliefs. Um, And it is again this this horror of having experts um, and um, this this denigration of experts which we're seeing in the post-truth era, uh, which is very, very frightening. Uh, Experts should be challenged, um, but um,
0: expertise should be recognised. In conclusion, we must ask, is there an absolute truth? Can there be an absolute truth? Well, yes and no. You cannot argue that day is night when it is day. 1 plus 1 does equal 2 and there is no relativity or ambiguity to it. But can you argue blue clashes with green when I do not know the colour that I see as green is the same green you are seeing? But we will not get into the philosophical definitions of determinism or absolute truth. For that, look out for Anand and Abhinandan's podcast on objectivity and bias. For now, we do need to look at how we are being manipulated and often manipulating ourselves with post-truths. So is there a solution to post-truth? Are there any solutions to this phenomena of spinning lies, spinning yarns and people lapping it up? Simon Winchester summed up the post-truth world.
10: To create something that is absolutely true, you need time or money, preferably both. But with the internet, you don't have time, so you've got to spend a lot of money trying to make things appear, be as truthful as they can be.
0: In some sense, post-truth sometimes becomes a football between politicians and journalists. Politicians want their version put out there. When that didn't happen with Donald Trump, he turned on CNN and other journalists. Uh, but for him to turn on CNN was
10: very ill-advised, I think, and, and the way that his press secretary then, after the inauguration, lectured the press on printing what he, the press secretary, said was a string of lies, it, it's, it's very bad news for the press. I mean, the press has a near constitutional duty to follow the twists and turns of the head of state, the most powerful man in the world. And to be argued with and to be hectored and to have your questions go unanswered and to be ultimately perhaps thrown out of the White House, that is not good for democracy.
0: Mihir, this is the most frightening thing I've ever heard, probably, in this week. It's uh,
6: animal farm, hunger games, God knows what else. We're doomed. Well, uh, let's hope we're not doomed, but it is definitely the case that we do not see the light at the end of this tunnel. Things are going to get a little worse in terms of believing things, in terms of the presence of authority, in terms of belief in facts, before they get better. At some point, we have to hope that the way that technology has, in many ways, created this problem, it will also help us solve it. People will eventually try and use technology in ways that are not just destructive to the narrative of truth, but also build it up. Um, You know, you could say that... uh, uh, for example, after note bandi enough people began to believe that there were GPS chips in 2,000 rupee notes. many people still believe that it is possible that technology will bust that myth as much as it built it up. Let's hope and, and, and if anybody you know among the listeners begins to see signs of that happening, I'd love for them to write into me or to you mathu and tell us what, the, what they think the answer is.
0: Here's Luke Harding's solution.
6: So it, it, it's, it's, it's clearly a dangerous moment and I think what's needed from from
4: journalists and from reporters is kind of collective solidarity rather than kind of competing and fighting over scoops. We need to pool information. Um, like, actually, we did with the Panama Papers, this big investigation into offshore, of, of which I was a part, where there were almost 400 journalists in 80 different countries working on a single story, single big league. Um, and we need to work together, whether it's with Trump, with Modi, with Erdogan, with Putin. I just think we have to kind of keep calm, hold on nerve, um, uh, be empirical, follow the evidence... Uh, collaborate um, and not exactly wait for better times but, but be, be kind of engaged um, and and not give up.
0: Uh, this disease has now been given a, an official name, mm. post-truth. Yeah. So one would think that now that it is officially a disease uh, it should be easier to combat it, that the public when they read uh, become a little more conscious of what the facts really are.
4: Ultimately our role has to be one of, of truth-telling and speaking truth to power um,
5: especially now, it's never felt more urgent and more important.
0: Here's Max Rodenbeck's conclusion.
5: It's always the case that technology uh, puts us in places of danger. You know, uh, uh, before people work out how to how to get around it and, and, and manage this, this this new phenomenon. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we we are right now for the next few years in a situation where there's a, a post-truth is a big bigger challenge than than it has been. Um, and uh, you know it demands caution and it demands a sort of uh, a lot of thinking how to get around this how to sort of uh, amplify truth and minimize the, the the non-truth
0: here are manu joseph's suggestions for the path ahead i feel that um, quality
7: would always be a niche and the challenge is to make uh, the niche as broad and big as possible i think we have to accept that um, a certain uh, mainstream
0: is over for respectable journalism. Sunil Kilnani pushes for accountability as a solution. But at the same time, we have to be able to hold that state
3: accountable about what it does with that information and what it does with our political futures. And the only way we can do that is by constantly holding up the record to it. This has been done, this hasn't been done, your, your promises are actually not been
0: played out, etc. They have successfully kept journalists in line, this huge amount of self-censorship. So, so far, Post-Truth seems to be winning. Yes, I mean,
3: you know, that could be said right now, but, you know, and I don't mean to sound Pollyanna-ish about this, but sometimes it is the shock of losing something that actually reaffirms a commitment to it. I mean, you know, if we look at our own historical experience, the emergency... In the midst of the emergency, things look incredibly bleak and incredibly um, hopeless. Um, but you know, one of the things that the emergency did, as you know, is it, it, it reaffirmed the importance of democratic politics, of the law, uh, both for the left and the right. I mean, the left who kind of thought it was bourgeois democracy suddenly now realised this is real democracy; it matters. The right who kind of thought this was all you know the Congress dominant realised that th- this mattered. So, um, um, and 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 then what we saw after the emergency was a resurgence of the press, of the law, of the legal system, and so on. So, I mean, I think. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that, that this will happen automatically. It's a fight. But it is, I think, at moments of pressure like this. And already in America, you're seeing people reacting to Trump. Um, you know, you're, and it's going to be a big battle, and we don't know how it comes out. But, but at the end of the day, um, what Trump is trying to do, what Putin is doing, what some in India are trying to do, information gets out people learn the truth people become skeptical and then people reject that kind of rule and we've seen this with authoritarian governments uh all through history um it's often a very nasty fight um lives are ruined lives are lost people suffer um but the struggle does go on um and that's 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 what actually history shows. It's very rare that we find that these, the the, the control of information survives forever. It crumbles, uh, and particularly in the in an age like today, where where um, you know things do get out. And we know from Snowden, we know from Assange, we know from WikiLeaks that that that, that um, you know no government secrecy is no even governments can't keep their own secrets. Um, And that's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing for a citizenry. And that's where, you know, the journalists, the scholars, the researchers, the historians have a huge role to play,
0: as do citizens. Ian Wilson wants the public to face the truth. And
9: um, it's therefore, I think, incumbent upon us, journalists and observers of the scene, to confront not merely the politicians themselves, and the people who are running the world, but to confront the public with the fact that they are being fed lies. I, I, I am an optimist. I do believe that in the end reason will prevail. I think, you know, there's no there's Latin tag that, that truth will prevail, however many people um, fight against it. Magna est veritas et praeva lebit. The truth is great and will prevail, and I do believe that.
0: It's not going to be an easy ride, but has it ever been? We have to not only fight for our truths to be heard, but most important, we have to push ourselves and our fellow citizens to be more discerning in what we and they choose to believe. Write in and let us know what you think of this podcast at contact at newslaundry.com. Remember, projects like this take a lot of time, resources and work. So do subscribe and support independent media. Now more than ever. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform.
6: Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent